This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but rarely do successful people get from point A to point B taking the most direct route. Host Jeffrey Klein speaks to a diverse mix of people to explore their story of success and the dots connected along the way. Thank you for listening. Here's your host, Jeffrey. This episode is big, as in big waves, as I chat with big wave photographer, Sachi Cunningham. She shares her story about the journey from wanting to be an architect because she only saw that men seemed to occupy that profession. This evolved in her interest in politics to address racial tension and inequality and empower those to find it hard to have their voices heard. Then the film book hit when she saw Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing leading her into a career in movies, commercials, and journalism, and finding her passion as a big wave surfing photographer and documentary filmmaker to help break barriers for women in that arena. It is clear that being in the ocean is where Saatchi feels most at home. Enjoy. My guest today is Saatchi Cunningham, a big wave photographer, documentary filmmaker, and professor of multimedia journalism at San Francisco State University. Her award-winning stories have screened at festivals worldwide and outlets including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, PBS Frontline, Frontline World, and the Discovery Channel. Both the Emmys, the Webbies, and Pictures of the Year International have honored Cunningham's work. A graduate of UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism and Brown University, Cunningham's documentaries focus on the international conflict, the arts, disability, and the ocean environment. On land, she has turned her lens everywhere from the first presidential election in Afghanistan to the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And in the water, she has swum with her camera alongside everything from a 350-pound bluefin tuna to big wave surfers to Olympian Michael Phelps. Once an assistant to actress Demi Moore and director, producer, writer Barry Levinson, Cunningham brings a decade of experience in feature films and commercial productions in New York, Hollywood, and Tokyo, her career in journalism and filmmaking. Please welcome Sachi. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you. So I like to start from the beginning uh, and ask where you were born and what did your parents do for a living? I'm actually, I'm wondering why, I, I'm going to backtrack though. Sorry, you're saying Sachi, I'm realizing because that's how Nita's, her accent, her English accent. You don't pronounce it Sachi? So she says Sachi, but it's Sachi. Sachi. <laughs> Ah, like, ah, ah. Anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. It's okay. I say a lot of funny words because of my wife who's got a British accent, so. Yeah. Well, and you live there, so you kind of have a, an adopted one. I do. So, yeah. Sachi, where were you born, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. OPA. Yeah. And, um the Keystone State, and my um, dad was and still is um, an industrial designer. They're called product designers now. Mm -hmm. And he also taught and still teaches design and design thinking at Carnegie Mellon University. And my mom um, was worked in special ed. Uh, she had a PhD in special education that she got at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, she finished up her education there, but um, worked in special ed research for a while until Reagan cut the program. Then she kind of went through a midlife crisis, career change, and worked, really I was trying to remember 
I don't really know what it was. It was an office building downtown. That's really kind of all I knew. I think it was like finance. I don't really know. It just was an office building downtown. Um, yeah. And then um, that really wasn't her thing. And so then she switched gears once again. And um, kind of the time of Jane Fonda started doing aerobics and decided to open up her own aerobics open up her own aerobics, Ella. she decided to open up her own aerobics business. And um, at the same time, my dad was um, starting to grow his industrial design firm. He had a small firm that started in our basement. Um, and so she managed his office and did the, you know, working, it was called the body firm. I still love that name. Yeah. <laughs> a body firm. Mm -hmm. So with that, that's kind of a pretty interesting background of, of parental background and different design and education. So as a kid, was there, you know, something you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, I think the first thing I wanted to be was a graphic designer because I was always around, um, mm -hmm. well, we had this graphic designer working in our basement, a very talented female graphic designer working in our basement. I always loved art. But the first time I kind of hung on to something, I think was um, I wanted to be an architect and that was in high school. But when I really think about why I wanted to be an architect, it was ostensibly because math was my favorite subject and I loved art and design. You know, I was, I was around design, so it just seemed kind of a good fit and mix of all of these things I enjoyed. But what really made me wanting to be an architect, I tried to find the issue, but there was this National Geographic that was d devoted to architects and every single architect was a man. I don't even, I was trying to remember if Zaha Hadid had made it in there. And I don't think she did. I think it was just a freaking magazine full of male architects. And I think it was more just like wanting to break a gender barrier that was what I wanted to do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so with that kind of wanting to, you know, gender barriers as a, as a you know, high schooler, I guess it was when you started thinking about this, did, were there people that you looked up to as role models? You know, was it your mom? Was it other, were there other females in, in the picture that really kind of inspired you or? Yeah, I mean, I think this answer is pretty, um, you know, common. I think my parents were my role models. Um, my dad, I still admire his tenacity of building his business, um, which started, as I said, as him just working in our basement. Um, I think some of my first jobs were as receptionists in Hollywood and I, I think I owe that to being a receptionist growing up, you know, our home line was the office line and I, that was before texts and answering machines. So I would come home and have to answer the phone, you know, Cunningham Design, this is Sachi speaking, may I help you? Um, so, and then, you know, that grew to two people working in the basement to eventually buying a building and then my mom managing it. And um, so, yeah, so I, I admire his his building his business, having a dream and, you know, building a, a small business of his own. And then also my mom building her own business and striking out on her own and, and doing something as really radical as having an aerobics business when she had a PhD in special education. But it actually, she com also combined those. She, I mean, I know the class she most enjoyed was teaching um, the school she taught aerobics at the school for the blind so you know so she was already I would they were always there was a lot of intersectionality in what they did so I think that influenced me and then my mom's sisters also um she has an older sister and a younger sister I'm sorry they're both older 
but they're kind of three, this is the, they're all Japanese American and one's very traditional, was a teacher her whole life and an elementary school teacher her whole life and married a Japanese lawyer and kind of lived, did everything right. And then the other sister kind of did everything wrong or <laughs> what would have been considered wrong. And she was kind of the rebel. She never got married. She started her own business as a typist um, and ended up kind of having a real estate empire, just saving her pennies and being smart about what she bought. And um, yeah, so they were, she was very much self-made. And um, then my mom was somewhere in between. So I'm really grateful for those three female um, role models I had because they were very different. They all took very different paths, but all were equally valid. And so, you know, that was a good, good uh, foundation. So for those three women or anyone else when you were growing up were, were great storytellers. I mean, you know, you're in journalism. Um, was anyone in particular, like they tell the best stories when you were growing up? Yeah, well, I mean, the storytellers in my family um, is also no surprise, the men, the white men, because <laughs> um, they get the stage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my dad and my uncle, his brother, I always admired their storytelling. They were always the ones giving the great toasts at weddings and you know, um, you think but, made them so good. Well, that's, I mean, I was thinking about it and they're good storytellers, but they also were given the stage. And so I mm -hmm. think what, I mean, as white men, they were given the stage. And I think what made them so good was their confidence in telling the story. You know, there was no nervousness in their voice. There was no hemming and hawing over, you know, how things, it was just confidence really and clarity of voice. So what was your first paying job where you earned money? Yeah. I mean, I think babysitting had to have been the first, but the real like one I paid into social security was um, lifeguarding. So as a lifeguard every summer from freshman year through senior year. At, at a pool? Yeah, Pittsburgh Public Pools. Yeah, that was a great job. And then I, I did some hostessing at restaurants on the weekends, I think also, but, but my main job was lifeguarding. Mm -hmm. And you're also a big swimmer at that point or? Yeah, so I had been swimming competitively since I was seven. So, um, yeah. And then when did you shift from architect to, you know, film journalism? How did that come about? Yeah, so in high school, I mean, I eventually morphed from architecture to um, just all of the issues in my, my high school was a public high school in Pittsburgh and it was um, kind of 60% black, 40% white, somewhere around there and really nothing in between. And um, I'm sorry, there's somebody here that doesn't know that I'm on a um, podcast call. I'm in the backyard, if you can give me one sure. second. Um, Hi, I'm on an interview, but Zach is here. Sure, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so um, I was very involved in school politics. Um, so I just point out the racial makeup of my school because at that time people were being empowered, you know, and so there was um, some tension. There was, a, there was a lot of racial tension and um, I, wanted to figure out how to make those worlds connect. I think as someone who's biracial, you kind of naturally fall into that 
way of thinking or way of doing or wanting to kind of bridge. You, I think you're kind of a natural bridge. Um, and so I thought the best way I could do that ultimately was in politics and through policy. Um, I was a student council president. So I, it's kind of seemed like I was going to be a natural for politics. But um, I saw the movie Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. And it just blew my mind. I mean, I just, I just was just, I remember sitting in the theater, just like my jaw just dropped. I just like stunned, just like so amazed at how a story could, you know, affect the way you think. You could change the way you think, could start conversations. And really those conversations could create more change than any policy possibly could, you know, that you can sit in this box and come out two hours later, a changed person. So that was okay. it. Was that? The power of story. Yeah, exactly. That was it. I was like, I'm not going to waste my time with politics. Like, I want to learn how to make feature films. That, that'll reach more people than anyone. And that's where we met. It is. Now, what about, uh, so you, you shift from politics to the film, and then how did you get into the photography and the surfing in particular? I know that's, you know. Yeah. You're incredible taking these, you know, pictures in the water. How did, how did you decide, you know what, I'm going to get in the water and, and why not take pictures of crazy surfing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was always a swimmer since I was seven, but in Pittsburgh. Um, but my parents are both from L.A. They both met at UCLA. And so all of our family was always in L.A. So we would go to, um, I'd spent, I actually spent every summer with my my mom's older sister, um, kind of steeped in Japanese culture, Japanese American culture. I went to Japanese school, and um, and then at the end of the, every summer, um, on my dad's side of the family, my grandparents always rented a beach house for two weeks in Capistrano Beach, California, and so that was also since I was born. Um, I had these two weeks every summer, and I just, I mean, I loved it. I just just I mean I was just like why every, after every two weeks I'm just like why why are we going back to Pittsburgh like why did you choose to live in Pittsburgh I don't understand um so I had a deep love for the ocean and um for body surfing nobody in my family surfed they just were body surfers so I I knew how to body surf always wanted to learn how to surf but didn't really know um who to ask I mean I think my dad at one point was threatened to like walk up to these cute young boys and just ask them, Sashi, well, I'm going to go ask them. And I was like, oh, God, not do that. So um, needless to say, I didn't learn until I was about 25 when I um, was doing an internship in um, San Jose, KTEH-TV at a public television station. And um, a friend from Brown had taught me in Santa Cruz. I was living in San Francisco and commuting there a few days a week working in a coffee shop to pay the bills and learned how to surf. And, um, but the evolution of the water photography is, was really from when I was in Pittsburgh and I was in high school. Um, there was this one evening that my dad called me down, Sachi, come, come see this. I think you'd be interested. And it was a documentary. I don't think it was about Aaron Chang, but it was about this water photographer named Aaron Chang, water surf photographer. And, you know, this is before in social media and everything. I mean, I, and I'm not from California, so I didn't even know what water photography was. 
But at that point, I liked photography. I had gotten a camera um, for my 16th birthday, a DSLR. So, you know, I was, I was getting into photography. I knew I loved body surfing. I loved the ocean. And I saw this guy surfing in the waves, getting paid I and mean, swimming in the waves, getting paid. And I was just like, what, you know, you can do that. So, um, so I think I was really wanting to do both of those things from high school on. I knew I wanted to like try the, I didn't really think the water photography, I guess would be a way to make a living. It still isn't, but, um, uh, but I think I had an interest in both of those. And so I wasn't able to pursue the water photography part until um, fast forward after Brown, I taught English in Japan for a year and made some money. My very, that was really kind of my first job that I saved money and bought my first camera, bought a water housing, um, found a Japanese photographer to mentor under. And, um, and then after that, worked in Japan another year, then traveled around Asia for about a year and my last stop was Indonesia. And that's when I really was doing the water photography. And, um, and I was like, this is it, this is what I want to do. But um, I came back and like, there were no like jobs you could get in it. I still, and I still wanted to do the film. I, I always wanted to do both. And so I could always get work doing films. Film work has always been my bread and butter. And then the water photography has been my passion it's kind of ironic to me that later in life I'm most known for my water photography because I've done all this other stuff, <laughs> but, um, but it's, but it's, yeah, I mean the water and probably I'm most known for it. Cause it's clear that I'm, maybe it's clear that I'm most passionate. I'm very passionate about it, you know? So between you've traveled quite a bit, what's the most surprising place you found yourself, whether it was a job or a place or interacting with someone what, if your younger self, you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this or being this, but where would that be? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint one of those places. I mean, uh, you would think it'd be like swimming in, you know, in the, the water at Jaws, um, the big wave in Maui and photographing the first competition for women, you know, the first ever competition for women in big waves, you know, something like that. But always the water photography has just um, felt like where I was supposed to be. Like nothing has been really, I don't want to say nothing has been surprising, but I bought my, I mean, I invested like $6,000 in my gear and water photography before ever even shooting a photo in the water. Because that was before the day of the GoPro and you couldn't, it was, I had a DSLR film camera, like, so I just like was, I just knew I was, that was it. Like I could, I wanted to do that and that I would love that. There was like no question about that. Um, so, which is a long way to say that when I was trying to think of places, it's really just locations. My, um, in graduate school, I did a story um, with two classmates about uh, matriarchy culture in China, uh, the Mosul, and we took this, this we took these horses up this mountain for like a day we were going up the mountain and this the our you know the guys leading us were wearing like flip-flops and you know had like pulling it was raining and they were pulling these big 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 plant leaves to put on their head for and then we get up and we stayed with this yak herder in the top of the mountain and this guy i mean this was like i think the most remote you know so we're basically in kind of Western China, um, 
very remote. It was the most remote I've ever been. And this guy was, had been like just alone for a real long time before we showed up. <laughs> and, and he like, he found this scrawny chicken that he cooked for us, killed and cooked for us and had this yak butter, you know, they all have yak butter tea and stuff. And I, that's still, I mean, I think that was also really early on. So of my traveling and doing stories abroad. So it was extremely impressionable. I think that's maybe also why it's the most unusual, but that was kind of, yeah, the most, but you know, I also, I've been in Iraq at, I think also being at a refugee camp for um, Christians who had fled Mosul, had fled ISIS, um, Christians from Mosul who had fled ISIS. Um, I was there for a story for Frontline. That was also a surprising place to be um, as a woman also. Um, there's been amazing, I mean, I've just been really fortunate to, anytime I'm in a different country or different culture, I think I'm happy. Um, the Middle East though, actually, I, I think has a real place in my heart. The Middle East feels, is the most foreign to me. Like mm -hmm. Asia is not very foreign to me because I lived in Japan for three years and half Japanese, so, but I love anywhere that makes me feel uncomfortable and that's brand new, you know? And, in the, you know, I mean, one of the, just in this last couple of minutes, you're sharing all these really cool stories. How important do you think it is to tell stories, to communicate with people? It's imperative, right? What else? I mean, <laughs> it's and, imperative. And as a journalist person, I figured you would say you would have that opinion. But I want to ask, do you think it's possible become a better storyteller or is that a skill that you're kind of it's developed or is it something you're kind of either you're born as a, a storyteller or you're not well, what are your thoughts on that oh, i think it's absolutely developed i'm sure the best storytellers grew up with somebody that they were listening to and modeling as a good storyteller um yeah my i i and i still am learning i don't think i'm really naturally a good storyteller i I'm still learning. I went to journalism school for graduate school for journalism. So I learned a little bit there, but journalists aren't necessarily good storytellers. We're, you know, truth tellers or we would like to be, but we're not really thinking about story so much or as much as I think we should. Um, I remember being on the set. I worked as an assistant to Barry Levinson and he was directing a movie called Bandits that had Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton. And I used to just listen to them just so intently. They would just spar all day long, the three of them. You know, obviously these three storytellers, professional storytellers. And I was so terrified to raise my voice or say anything, but it was kind of my goal to try and like inject something, have something to say that was worthy of raising my voice for, but um, mostly just listening to them. Um, and then now we have so many resources, right? All these podcasts. And I think it's great. There's just so many examples of storytelling out there now that we can learn from. Sachi, what inspires you? What inspires me are um, people who are unapologetic about what they want and what they're passionate about. Um, I think I as a woman, as an Asian woman, specifically as a Japanese American woman. Uh, culturally, I've been really taught to not be unapologetic, <laughs> to, to just timidly ask for what I want. And um, 
that it's not, uh, what I want is not worth raising my voice and asking for. Um, I'm also of a gen, you know, I'm older. We're old now, Jeffrey. So. <laughs> um, uh, I want to ask you, so we are older and wiser, hopefully. Um, looking back at all the experience you've had in this time. So what, pe what, what one piece of advice would you give your 21 year old self? Yeah, so I would tell her to stop trying to be a perfectionist, um, to be comfortable with failing, um, to ask for what you want, and ask again, and ask again, until you get it. And ask to get paid what you deserve. I still need to learn that one. Yes, we all, I think we all, uh, we all deserve a lot more than we get. I'll tell yeah. all my um, on the storytelling front, I want to back up because you asked what, why it's important, and I think you outline it perfectly in your TED talk, is, and that's what I love is how you um, show them, or you talked about the different sides of the brain that it activates, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's the only way that people will remember is, or, you know, glom onto something, and I, I just love that I, 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 I guess I didn't know exactly the science behind like the connection when you tell a story and the other person feels it and yeah the neural coupling. so that yeah the neural coupling yeah where people experience from a brain chemistry perspective what it is that the storytellers sharing yeah, yeah. I, when i discovered when i came across it, it it was it made sense but it was fascinating to think that our brains are really hardwired for story and that's why yeah. it's really, Amazing. So you're, you're, you're still a journalist. You're still a fil documentary filmmaker. Um, what do you see? Sh and, and, and the big wave. So I'm going to ask you, what do you see kind of coming next in terms of journalism and or the big wave uh, photography? Mm -hmm. Either of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so both of those I'm actually, I I'm known for, but I, you know, really I'm paying the bills as a professor and mm -hmm. Ironically, all of those things, I never ever set out to be a journalist. I never ever set out to be a professor. Like those two things I never in a million years would have thought I was doing right now. Um, a lot of different things have led to that. Um, but uh, I am about to start a sabbatical, a year long sabbatical from teaching. So. Um, I'd like to take this year to, I'd like to talk to you in a year, because um, I'm going to try and take this time to figure out what's next. But I think probably what's going to be next is writing. Um, you know, filmmaking is uh, what they don't teach you in school is that filmmaking is actually full-time fundraising. And um, I'm a little tired of full-time fundraising and having an idea for a story and having to wait 10 to 20 years to tell that story. Um, so my husband's a writer and I, we've actually done some stories together and I'm always like, I'm the one doing the photos and video and I'm up late downloading the cards and getting the batteries ready. And he's like literally taking a nap in the sun with his notebook, you know, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm working, I'm thinking, I'm writing, like, this is part of writing. And so oh God, that sounds good, you know, so I just, I think um, there's something quite beautiful and simple about the power of the pen. So I think I'd like to, um, and yeah, you can just do it, put it out there, 
don't have to rely on, you know, million dollar budget to tell that story. So probably something along those lines. Okay. Now we're at the point where I'm going to ask you the nine rapid fire questions. So don't think about them too much. Just kind of share what first thing that kind of pops in your head. Mm -hmm. So is it better to be a planner or a doer? I'm very much a doer. Should stories always have happy endings? Absolutely not. Because that's not what uh, you know, that's not the human experience. Do you have a favorite emoji? Yeah, so how do we do it? It's, that, it's this one. The winky one with the tongue out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one. Uh, if you had to sing a karaoke song, what song would you choose to sing? Yeah, this one's tough. I really, even though I'm half Japanese, I kind of don't like karaoke. I'm not, I'm not a karaoke person, so... I think maybe I I kind of go to the Madonna songs or something, something like that. Yeah. What's your favorite social media platform? Instagram. Can you name a book that left a lasting impression on you? Yeah, I'm going to go with Blue Mind by Jay Nichols. And it's all about the, it's a kind of a collection of the science behind how water um, makes us happy, happier and healthier. Um, I just bought um, Bonnie, a book called Why We Swim by Bonnie Soy, which I have a feeling might become my next favorite book. But um, yeah, water. Uh, name one of your favorite movies. I'm going to go back with Do the Right Thing. What's the one thing you can't live without? The ocean. If you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? Yeah, inventing is a strong word. I don't know if I, I don't think if I would, I don't, I don't want to uh, come off as uh, saying I invented it, but I would like to be, um, to be known for the work I did with creating a space for women in big wave surfing and competitive big wave surfing. Love it. Uh, Sachi, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything in particular that you want to promote at the moment? I know you're working on documentary. What is it you would like, you've shared with us. Is there anything you want us to share with the audience? Yeah, there's two things. One is my own project, but I also, because I had your questions beforehand, there's one question you didn't ask that I, I, I do want to just uh, discuss mm. shortly, which was, um, I don't remember what the question is. Oh, maybe your first job or, um, Anyhow, it's just something I tell my students. So for anyone who's listening to this, the only, I've only applied, my current job as a professor is only the second time in my life, maybe the lifeguarding job also, the second time I've applied for a job. Like, like I've actually just applied. Every other job has been through my network and networking, networking, networking. So I think, you know, for young people, they really need to know that, um, it's it's not a job that you're just going to find on the internet that you have to really be seeking out these jobs and these passions and and hopefully through that they'll they'll kind of come to you right um the the dots that you'll you start connecting the dots back to your thing that you just need to start finding those dots and that the connections will come right i agree um, what's the best ways for people if they want to, I want to promote my, I want to promote my, then my next thing is I do want to promote, oh, yes. I am making this documentary, she change about the best female big wave surfers in the world and, um, their quest to get, um, equal pay 
for women in big wave in competitive big wave surfing. And is there a website or somewhere we can point people to? to yep, they can go to shechangedthefilm.com or on Instagram it's at shechangedthefilm or they can go to my Instagram handle, which is at Sesachi, S-E-A-S-A-C-H-I. And we will put those in the show notes so everyone has links to them. Well, this is awesome. Uh, I'm so happy we got to have this conversation and you've been a real pleasure as always. Um, thank you for just sharing. Um, you have great stories, you know, and, and I think that's always what makes these successful is to have people who are passionate about what they do what you clearly do um, and, and sharing it in, in that way. So I, I want to say thank you for helping us connect the dots. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.